All right. We are talking about the Holy Spirit. And as I was just saying, it's been a little bit since we have uh, come to our, from our last session because we had the Christmas break. So we're, we're continuing looking at utilizing the Spirit at everybody's coffee. Everybody's sick. It's amazing. All right. So we're looking at new life in the spirit, and what does that mean? I know I've asked this the last couple of weeks as we've begun, but it's worth asking again, why are so many churches called new life? If there's anything that is almost as prevalent as First Baptist, it is new life. Why is that? Okay. And in Scripture, which part of the Trinity is that new life directly attributed to? Which part of the Trinity brings you to new life? Okay, yeah, you do see a lot of flames and, and sprigs of things, but flames also. Now, you say Holy Spirit because it's a Holy Spirit class, and we say new life of the Spirit. Yep, yep, yep. Is that the way you normally think of it? When you talk about we've been given new life, do you normally think that's brought about by the Holy Spirit? Or do you normally think, oh, Eric, you're shaking your head. You think Christ. Why? And you're not, I'm not there is no wrong answer because the Trinity. It's not wrong to think that Christ is who purchases us new life and adoption of sons and all that kind of stuff. Nothing wrong with that. But let's talk about, we've been talking about new life in the Spirit, so let's continue talking about it. And the question that I've been asked, oh yeah, go ahead. Is new life in the Spirit born again? Well, kind of. I guess, I guess back in the uh, mid-century, 20th century, and into the 70s, the whole thing was born again. Let's use that, which is, as we talked about before, biblical language, right? From John, where he's talking to who? Do you remember? When, when Jesus is talking to whom, who is he talking to in chapter 3? Nicodemus. Nicodemus, right? And he talks about you must be born again. But there's also new life, and, and specifically talked about you are given new life. And if you remember, we looked at so many places in the Old Testament. This is not just a New Testament thing. So many places in the Old Testament where the Spirit brings new life, right? This is a, this is a, a consistent biblical concept. But let's look in the New Testament. Let's do a little Bible study in Romans about new life in the Spirit. So, again, I'm going to ask everybody to grab a Bible, because I'd like everybody to be able to read this. Um, and whoever gets there first, you are the first person in the line to start reading. And then we'll go from there. Whoever gets there first, Romans 8, 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. We do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Okay, the law in there, let me ask. What detail or details jump out as interesting things that are there when you look at that section, those four verses? There's a lot of interesting things in there. But anything jump out? Well, just what is the law of the Spirit of God? 
That's an interesting question, isn't it? We'll talk about that. What? I think it's interesting. It talks about what the law was powerless to do. When we look at the law, we feel like it's such a powerful thing, but yet it's powerless to do the most important thing. Yep. And if you remember, Paul's argument in Romans is that it has always been powerless to do it, and that it was never intended to do it, right? <laughs> Remember Paul's basic argument that we're not necessarily going to go into here so we can talk about it for a second? What was Paul's basic argument about what the whole point of the law has always been? Okay. Yes. To point to, basically, let's kind of link that all together, to point to the fact that you're all broken to the point of death and that nothing you do can possibly fix that. It's like, the law says, this is what God is expecting of you. And you go, I can't possibly do that. Yeah, that's right. This is what you were designed for. This is what God is expecting of you. And no, you can't do it. You know, but if I follow the law, if I follow it well enough, I could I could attain righteousness to the point where God would be happy. And Paul says, that was never the point of the law. Because if that were the case, somebody would have done it somewhere along the line. And ain't none of us been able to do it. But that's not the law's fault, right? Because he says, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law isn't broken. It's, it's that you're trying to, it's like you're trying to build a bridge that has a perfectly good blueprint, and you're building it out of jello because you don't have the right construction materials. You can't do it. But it isn't the blueprints. It's, not, it's nothing wrong with the foundation. It's, it's the fact that you guys can't do it. So what the law that you guys have seen is all-powerful, all-consuming, has never been able to do whatever the law of the spirit of life is, that's done. Okay, what else? Anything else jump out at you in this? The rest of you have had so much time to think. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? <coughs> it's a trick question because it's pretty straightforward, but, but I mean, how would you articulate that to somebody? <coughs> And that's and I'm glad you, you changed that. He's like, it doesn't matter. You go, oh, it, it absolutely matters, but not in terms of condemnation. You know, it matters that you follow the law, but you go, I, I just don't know if I'm good enough. Paul, in essence, goes, oh, you're not. Nobody ever has been. But that's not how you've been saved in the first place. And if you have been saved, the condemnation that you were afraid of by not being good enough, uh, that, that doesn't exist. If you haven't been saved, that condemnation that you feel by not being good enough, Oh, that's totally valid, because you're not. But if you have been saved, if you've been paid for by the blood of Christ and set free by the spirit of, a, of life, then that condemnation you're afraid of, it's irrelevant to you. It's an interesting concept, because it's pretty simple, and it makes total sense. And even Christians, a lot of times, we will get this totally backwards, right? Just be like, but I know God expects stuff, and it's really important, and I've got to do it, I've got to do it, I've got to do it. Otherwise, I, I, I feel this condemnation. You know, oh, if you feel condemnation, that's not from God. If you feel, do this matter, do this right, that could be from God. But the idea of, you know, I, I, I feel like the full weight of God's damnation is on my heart because I, I'm just not good enough. Then that would suggest if you were good enough, that's what removed the condemnation. 
we can discuss this later. I understand. But I think the idea of what in Christ Jesus means is really different amongst different Christian yep. theologies, and that's where some of it gets kind of hairy. Well, one part where some of it gets kind of hairy. And, and I understand, I, I mean, Paul's being very clear, if you are in Christ, if you are saved, if you are a Christian, this condemnation doesn't exist. There are some groups of Christians that think, if you do something condemnable, you cease being a Christian. That creates something of a logical problem here, because you go, his whole point is, you don't have to fear condemnation if you are in Christ. They're like, right, but once you do something that is condemnable, you're no longer in Christ, well then that makes this somewhat a pointless encouragement then, because apparently Christians should still fear condemnation. But neither here nor there. Anything else? Okay. How do you see the persons of the Trinity interacting? By the way, this is a, a classic Trinitarian uh, snapshot that you get in, uh, in, in this is a stained glass thing. If you don't speak Latin, we can go with a more modern take on it, which is actually not a modern take on it. It's actually a medieval take on it. So for those of you who go, I don't like your fancy, fancy modern stuff, you go, no, this is medieval. It's just using English. And it's so modern that it's actually a Venn diagram when you think about it, which I think is interesting. Anyway, how do you see the persons of the Trinity interacting here? What does the Father do in these, in these four verses? Okay. God did by sending his only son. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Okay. This is the interesting thing. This has been a... I think so, yes. But this is the interesting thing in terms of grammar. There are people who look at that and go, well, is that Jesus condemned sin and sinful man? because it's just a he, we're not sure who this is pointing back to, is this the spirit condemning sin and sinful man? I think the most immediate one, the one that requires the least amount of hoop jumping, is that the Father, God the Father, is condemning sin and sinful man. But, um, what does it mean that he condemns sin and sinful man? He says sin is bad? Is that what it means? He sent Jesus to die to say sin is bad, right? Does that make logical sense? I already said sin is bad. That's, yeah. That's the so reason. Jesus to forgive us. So what does he mean then? He sent the Son to condemn sin and sinful men. Again, this is something that I think, I know it's just like, why are we spending this much time? But I think most of us read that and go, right, because sin is bad, and he's condemning it, saying, naughty, stop sinning. No, that's what he's been saying the whole time. So what is he saying? Well, up there, go ahead. You know, I guess when I think of condemnation, I think of something more than just saying that it's bad, that there's consequences for it. So I think okay. condemnation is not just that it's bad, it's now these are the consequences that we're going to back What were you going to say? Yeah. So it seems as though he's saying there's 
parts of us. There's flesh, there's spirit, there's, and so you could dissect it that way. I don't okay. know if I would. Yes, but possibly not the way you're indicating there. Okay. It, it, we'll see this in a second as we continue here in, in, in uh, chapter 8. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not just saying, I'm condemning that, saying it's naughty. It's saying, I'm condemned. It, it's throwing it in prison. It's all the things that you think of with this. You've gotten, you've gotten indicted, you've gotten found guilty, and you've been condemned. Right? Because what's the next part? It's condemned sin and sinful man. Right. Which, he argues, can't be fulfilled in you in your sinfulness, in your fleshly nature, and what have you. So when he's talking about condemned sin and sinful man, he's talking about, I, I, I'm getting rid of this. It's not just saying it's naughty, it's I'm indicting it, I'm condemning it, and getting rid of this. And so what God the Father is doing is sending the Son specifically to get rid of it, which is why there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not just saying it's naughty, it's bad. It's saying... It's no longer part of your equation. What does God the Son do? Perfectly fulfills the law. Okay, how so? <coughs> the, that's, I'm reading into it a little bit, I guess, but... You're, you're not his, his son in the likeness of sinful man, so likeness of sinful man, so he wasn't right. a sinful man, so he was a perfect man, therefore he was perfectly fulfilling the law. Yep. He, he only looks like, like one of us. He is fully human, but he only looks like one of us lawbreakers. He isn't one of us lawbreakers. Um, anything else that you see here? He perfectly fulfills the law. He is a sin offering. To, to, and a sin offering was to pay for the sin that we have done. But by definition, if he's removing it, there's also an atonement offering being made there. What else? He declares the end of our sins. That, yes, and that's a really good point. Through him, because of him, we can somehow meet fully meet the requirement of the law. And if you remember in verse 2, through Christ Jesus, the law of, spiritual, of life set us free from the law of sin and death. So somehow, through his work, we have been set free in this. So what's the Spirit doing? What's God the Spirit doing here? There's at least two things we see. Okay, so in, the, in verse 4, we're, we're not supposed to be living according to the, to the flesh or according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. So he's giving us direction in that. What else is he doing in these four verses? Verse 2. Yeah. Yeah, the law... So he's got some sort of law, some sort of rule, some sort of some sort of direction here. The law of the, of the spirit of life has set me free. So through Christ, the rule of the spirit has set me free, right? It's so often in scripture, it seems like when you remove one thing, you can't leave a vacuum. 
Oh, that's, I'll give you a shiny nickel. That will be something that comes up in a second. But, and I know that a lot of times we, we, just kind of, we just kind of skim over this kind of stuff and say, yep, this is cool. But if we skim over this, we read these four verses and we say, Jesus' sacrifice has set me free. Right? Do these verses say Jesus' sacrifice set me free? No. Through Christ's sacrifice... What has set me free? Law of the Spirit. Yeah. The law of the Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life has set me free. A lot of times, and we keep coming back to this in the Sunday school class, that somehow we read the same Bible, we read these verses over and over, and the Spirit keeps dropping out. And we go, geez, there's just not that much about the Spirit in the, in the, in the Bible. I can't get a mental picture of what's going on or what he's doing. I have such a clearer vision of God the Father. I have such a clearer vision of God the the Son, I guess the Spirit is like my conscience, and somehow he empowers me. Have we seen that the Spirit is intimately involved in a gazillion things? Even down to stuff we, we tend to think of as the purview of God sent his Son to condemn sin and sinful man so that we've been set free. Father and Son, what about the Spirit there? What? Somehow you got through that without ever hearing that it's the Spirit? that's ultimately setting you free here? How's that work? How are they interacting with one another? How would you synopsize this to somebody? How, are the, how is the Trinity interacting? It's one fluid motion. two-part question. How are they interacting with one another, or how are they being distinct? And when I say distinct, I don't mean utterly separate. I mean, your your hand is distinct from your eye, right? So they're utterly separate. No. So you can have hand-eye coordination, right? You can, they can work in concert, even though they're, they're all part of the same body, but they're distinct. All right? How is the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son, how are they all working in one fluid motion but doing distinct things? I guess a simple way to look at it would be a sender, a carrier, and a deliverer. Okay, how so? The Father is sending, the Son is carrying, and the Holy Spirit is then delivering. Okay. Okay, I can see that. Anybody else want a different? Maybe that's the way to do this, is an analogy. Anybody else have a different analogy? Yeah. How so? Okay, now I'm not just talking about the Trinity, I'm talking about how they're acting in these four verses, but yes. through and changes you, right? Is that fairly consistent in terms of what we've seen in Scripture? Have we seen God being a volitional agency in Scripture? Where God's will, God's, God's sending, God's commands, God's direction, God's leading? 
Have we seen Christ being a propitiatory sacrifice, uh, changing us uh, in terms of buying us back from our sin? Absolutely. Do, do we see the Holy Spirit changing people when it comes upon people? When he, I said it, when he comes upon people? Absolutely. So, I mean, this is, this is distinct and yet coordinated. This is one person with different elements, different ways of interacting. How are we expected then to be interacting with the Trinity here? Implicit in these verses, or even explicit in these verses, how are we supposed to be living in response to this new life that we've been given in the Spirit? Through the Spirit, um, he, he that replacement idea where if you remove the sinful flesh from the law, the flesh, you have to replace it with something else. We're never back. So what does Jesus say happens if you do remove sin from your life without replacing it with God's leading? And, and like seven times worse. It's like there is no such thing as a vacuum that lasts. That bubble will pop and worse things will pour in. You, you can't you can't do that. And part of why it's worse is because you go, ooh, I'm clean now. It's like the people who drink it's like the people who drink Diet Pepsi, so now they can have a double whopper and the large fry because they're getting a Diet Pepsi and that makes it healthy. And you just go, What no? But yeah, you have a responsibility. Now would you say that this is a requirement to live according to the spirit? You have a responsibility. You go once this this part, this spirit of death in us is gone. You have a responsibility. You, personally, have this required responsibility, this obligation that you now have to live like that, that you have to live in the Spirit. I think it should be your goal, for sure, because otherwise the first part didn't happen. No, it's not a have to. You absolutely have to do this. It's an obligation. I don't think I said in order to. <laughs> that you have to live according to the Spirit. I mean, what does it say in verse 4? That we, there might be Philemon as who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. So you have to stop living according to the sinful nature that have to start living according to the Spirit? We have free will. We can choose not to. We can choose to wallow in the fleshly nature. The Bible goes on and on about how we need to stop that. Um, so we have choice. So we don't have to or we do have to? What's your point with the choice? We'll want to. We'll want to. That's a good one. Okay. Yeah. I like one or the other. What? I like yeah. Order. Okay. How so? Um, you don't have to. When you drink, you have free will. But in order to continue in that relationship with Christ, yes. Okay. Somebody read me verses 5 and 6. Let's keep going in Romans here. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But 
letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Okay, so what's the distinction being made here? Between what and what? Flesh and the spirit. Okay, flesh and the spirit. Anything else? Okay, so yeah, there's, how is this working its way out? You go, well, one is, one is very positive, one is very negative. One leads to life, one leads to death. One, yeah, I mean, there's, there's very much a distinction. What does it mean that our minds are to be controlled by the spirit? How does that work? This has been a topic of much conversation amongst people. What does it mean to be, that you must be controlled by the spirit? Or controlled by the sinful nature? How have you always taken it? I mean, even if you don't necessarily, even if you want to go, oh, let me think about that. Okay, you've heard this verse before, right? So how have you taken it? Maybe you never really thought about it. What was your knee-jerk reaction when you heard it? Okay, let's come back to that. Let's come back to that. Remind me of that. What were you going to say? I was going to say, uh, control by is you're, you want to listen to and follow the spirit rather than the flesh. Now, obviously, you can't do it all the time, but you want to be aware of and listen. I don't. I don't disagree with anything you just said. Is that the way you normally take the word control? When you talk about something controlling something, you go, "Well, that's being generally led and direct. You want to be aware. That's what you think of when you think of control. Um, control. You think of somebody at the dials. Yeah." I remember having a conversation with one person. I've actually heard different pastors speaking on this and different people taking this this direction. But I had an extended conversation with somebody in college at one point where this was one of the verses that made them not want to be a Christian. I have no desire to be a puppet on a string. That I have to be either can I either control myself or I'm controlled by God like a marionette. I don't I don't want to do that. I mean, in other parts of the Bible, it talks about being a slave to Christ, mm -hmm. and a slave to his will, and so that, that idea of that almost a willingness to be controlled. Mm -hmm. um, like I'm sure it's like this. Right. Yeah. You're either controlled by sin or controlled by sin. Well, that's what he's saying here. Yep. Um, what version is the control? Aha! Several versions. Because I was going to say, my version doesn't have control. Nope. In verse six. Neither does, and neither does verse 6 in the original Greek. The original Greek, it never says controlled. I'm not saying that the NIV is a bad translation. It's just translations that have said controlled have messed up people over the years with this. Because what it actually says is to have your mind set on, to be mindful of. Now, got to be careful, though, and I totally get why the NIV went with this, and other versions have gone with this. Because if you go, have your mind set on, be mindful of, it can be really easy for us in a modern context to go, yeah, be aware of. Which is not what it's saying in in, in <coughs> It's like, your mind needs to be the spirit's mind. Your mind needs to mind like the spirit's mind. Remember when we talked about the, the prophets and, and we talked about how your heart beats with God's heart? That's what they're trying to do is to make your heart beat with God's heart. What Paul is saying is here is, your mind think with the spirit's mind. So is that... 
Is that less intense or more intense than controlled by the spirit? It would be less if you interpret control as absolute control. Okay. In what ways is that even more intense than you're the puppet and the and the puppeteer is directing you? A puppet is not doesn't have emotions or doesn't have the passion for the puppeteer. Whereas mm -hmm. you're setting your mind, you're making your mind <coughs> the spirit you're pursuing. Yep. And this is what the conversation I had with the guy in college was, because he's like, "You're a puppet on a string." I'm like, "No," because the puppet surrenders volition. The puppet says, "All I am is on a string. You move me around." That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is your thoughts actively make them spirit's thoughts. It's like in every way, I am making the string tether to my to my puppeteer. I'm he's not tethering to me, I'm tethering to him. I'm saying my thought is his thought. When I step into a situation, I go, wait, what would the spirit direct me to do? Wait, what's the spirit direct me to do? Now, on some levels, that's still going, well, but you're still surrendering your choices to the Spirit. Like, no, technically they're still my choices. The marionette has no choice in the matter and just says, you direct me. With every step, you are choosing to make your mind Christ's mind, God's mind, the Spirit's mind. I guess when I think of that control, when I think about it in more like a scientific, maybe a scientific experiment, you have the control, that's the unchanging and you do everything in the, in the spirit of it, with the control being the same. Everything else, your oh, choices, the things that you do, operate under that one unchangeable thing. So it's the unchangeable thing. I like that. The that's Holy nice. Spirit and the, the spirit of life or the spirit of death and sin. I think that's a nice analogy. Again, I mean, the word control that we tend to apply here isn't actually in there, but I like that, 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 that analogy of saying, okay, this is the part that doesn't change everything else are the variables. I want to attach myself to the part that doesn't change. So, what's the distinction that Paul keeps making in verses 5 and 6 about what we gauge our thinking by and what the net results are? You can set your mind on, on the flesh, and that does what? Or you can set your mind on the spirit, and that leads to... Okay. Given these verses, would you say that it is an obligation, then, that you have to live according to the Spirit? Now remember the way we define it. This isn't, the word control isn't there. It's set your mind on. You need to consciously mind yourself into his mind. Does that mean that it is an absolute obligation? I think obligation is just a word that is Okay. So I would say that um, it, is, it should be your desire to really set your mind on spiritual things. Um, you should, but you don't have to. I don't think you have to, but I don't think that you will last. <laughs> <laughs> okay. you if, you're don't. Not, if you're not desiring spiritual things, then Jesus and God is you another argument that's made then, by multiple <laughs> authors of, what's, what's wrong with you? You know, it's like... Um, I think you can make a strong case in scripture that there's multiple times where we're not told that you absolutely must be baptized in order to be saved. And yet, there seems to be a very consistent message in scripture, why 
wouldn't you be? I mean, this is this is clearly something that is commanded. Christ commanded a grand total of two rituals: the Lord's Supper and baptism. Why? Why wouldn't you do that? So you have to in order to be saved? No, it doesn't say that. Yeah. Absolutely, that you can't have times where you are fluctuating in your ability to do that. Oh, absolutely. And you're still religious salvation. I think it's, I think it's more that you are learning to choose the spirit. It's way of thinking over the flesh, and, it, and the spirit is actually there to help you do that if you are a true Christian. To help you do that. Yes. Okay. Well, and I think it's talking about a if you do. details you find most interesting here? Some really interesting here. stapled to. You go, well, praise be. Uh, but, okay. Yeah, it, it is It is processed. Well, I mean, you could talk about the difference between, as we've talked before, the, the moment of justification and the process of sanctification, right? Um, there's various ways that you can you can look at that. Anything else jump out? I don't want to go too far. Anything else jump out at you in 7 to 10? Flesh is hostile towards God. It makes it difficult to follow, doesn't it? Is that what he's saying? No, it's impossible to follow, right? If you are in your flesh, it's impossible to follow God. And if you're not in your flesh, if you're in the spirit, what? Yes. Okay, maybe maybe that's a yeah. So you are minding the spirit. Your mind goes with your heart. Your heart beats with God's heart. Your mind beats with God's mind. 
lack of a better term, pulses. I don't know where you want to go with that. Um, sparks. Sparks. Okay. We'll thesaurus this after after class. So he's making a distinction here, right? And again, just to clarify, for those who are reading in the NIV, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but are controlled by the spirit. It's a bit of a misleading. Again, it simply says you are not in flesh, but in spirit. Right? He's basically showing us the way it works. He's saying that um, when you become a Christian, you're going to have the spirit in you. And then you're, you're going to need to desire to live by the spirit. Otherwise, you're going to... Uh, you should use the word need there. Are you sure you want to? Because need implies obligation. I just don't want to use the word obligation. Okay, we'll avoid the word obligation. <laughs> requirement? Does that sound better? Yeah, it is. A, it's like a guideline, a, a requirement. I don't know. Obligation <laughs> seems obligation. negative, and requirement is just the rules. Okay. So you're going to need the next word. Again, let's go back to this. You, however, are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. Is that stronger or weaker than being controlled by the sinful nature versus being controlled by the spirit? In what ways is that weaker? You're, you're in the spirit, you're in the flesh, you're controlled by the spirit, controlled by the flesh. So what way is just saying in instead of controlled? How is that weaker? In your, you, you have, it's two entirely different things to, they almost can't even talk to each other because they're different languages, different whole ways of thinking if you're in the spirit you want you, you want God and so it's again kind of like so it's weaker than control because control there's some kind of force upon you binding oh, you let's say it this way there are a whole lot of people in this world that like to talk about I'm not really religious but I'm spiritual and by that I mean I have a vague sense of mysticalness that there's bigger things I wear a red thread around my wrist I don't know I'm spiritual okay uh, but it's not like it controls me. I just am very spirit sensitive. So, in that respect, being spiritual is less powerful than being controlled. However, as we've been talking about, I'm pretty sure Paul is not saying this is to, to make it weaker than that. In what ways would you say this is far more intense and far more powerful than simply being controlled in this? To me, like and obligations, all those sound like the law. To me, being in, it's my lifeblood, it's my connection, it's who I am. I mean, I, I, to me, it's just, it's just a, to me, even need, hunger, thirst, passion. I mean, I just, it's, it has to do with your very being instead of following rules or being a puppet. It has to do with absolute, I don't know, connection, lifeblood, love, passion. I, I, I don't know. Okay. It's, Weekly, if you're in the water, the water around you, you're in it. When you're controlled by the water, it's telling you what to do. But if you are in the water and it's strong, you're part of the water. Yeah, um, think of this one. Uh, I don't know. Pardon me? That was the exact analogy. Okay. Um, uh, is there a difference between. This is a. I'm trying to think of what would be a good analogy to stretch that. But it's like, well, let's just, let's just do it this way. Um, if you're in the water, you're, you're in the ocean, you're floating in the ocean, you're floating in the, in the river, you're, you're swimming, <coughs> to what degree can you control or be controlled about being wet? You go, well, you are wet. I mean, it's just, you, 
You are wet. They're one and the same. Yeah, it's like you can't be in the water without being wet. And so when he's talking about you're in the flesh or you're in the spirit, it's like, are you in the flesh or are you in the spirit? Because if you're in the flesh, you're thinking like the flesh, your mind is thinking like the flesh, and that leads to... If you're in the spirit, you're minding like the spirit minds, you're thinking like the spirit thinks, and that leads to... Is there even a sense of like, well, if you're in the spirit... You know, you need to have a sense of wanting to follow the Lord, or you need to, it's like, you're already wet. You're you're going to be wet. So it's physiologically impossible, once you're wet, to ever not be wet, right? If the water moves, you can move too. Yep. So you are controlled, but it's only a subset of being in the water. Yep. You can. All people swim. Salmon swim upstream. I'm pretty sure you can swim upstream. What? How many point counterpoints do you see in verses 1 to 10? Give me some examples of point counterpoints. Give me some examples of any of the point counterpoints that you see. Most of them are like that. But it was like, what? like what? You can do this, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. Yep, the law of the spirit of life, the, the law of sin and death. What else? What else? Power and weakness. What else? Yep. Living according to that, not living according to that. Minding this, minding that. Living in the flesh, living in the spirit. He, in fact, if anything, he's getting deeper into this. He's talking about setting your mind on this and then actually being in the flesh or being in the spirit. Why do you think Paul keeps presenting new life in the spirit as an either or? Can it be a both hand? Yeah. It makes me think of a lot of the Old Testament imagery of being on a path. There's a path that leads to righteousness and a path that leads to death. Or path you're either in one of the roads. Mm-hmm. And you can't be, if you're going in a different direction, you can't be in both roads at the same time. Yep. You're either in this road or you're in that road. You're either on the path or you're stepping off the path at any given moment. Which which is the same with that's true with a path, right? I mean, you're either on the sidewalk or stepping on off the sidewalk at any given point. For those of us that like football, you're either in bounds or stepping out of bounds at any given moment, right? It's the way that it's the way that works. You see that in Psalm 119. You see that in the Proverbs. Of course, you see, didn't Jesus talk about there being a relatively narrow path? Yeah. Anything else? Why? Why contrasting couplets? Yeah. What? Why? Why does he present this as couplets? It's an either or. Why can't it be both ends? I mean, we, we can see the couplets and we can figure out the analogies. Why? Okay. Because people like to have wiggle room and try to, try to find the loopholes in what, what God is doing. And it's, like it's just kind of going through all the possible loopholes. You can be saved and not saved at the same time, can't you? You can have salvation and condemnation at the same time, can't you? I'm sorry, have you ever tried to hold in your heart the concept that you are saved and under condemnation at the same time? But you can't, right? 
it, it doesn't work, right? It always creates a sense of conflict in your head because you can't be under salvation and under condemnation at the same time. And people do it all the time. People are forever going, oh, I know I'm saved, but I think I'm kind of God hates me. And you go, pretty sure one of these is wrong. Might have something to do with that. Uh, your body is dead because of sin. Ha! <laughs> Who will save me from this body of death? Okay, how does that jive with what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus back in John 3, 14 through 21? You can turn there if you want. We're going to stay in Romans, but you can turn there if you look at that. Or somebody look at 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Whoever's next. I don't remember who's next. Uh, why don't you take it? What's 1 Corinthians 2.14 say? Or anybody look at John 3. Remember what he was talking about to Nicodemus. How does any of this relate to any of that? man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So how does that jive with this? What Paul is telling the Corinthians being similar to what Paul is telling the Romans about how the Spirit works and new life in the Spirit works. Yeah. It should change how pardon me? Okay. It should change how we do outreach. It should change how we interact with the world around us. We we can't expect somebody outside of Christ to understand things in Christ the way we understand them. We can't expect that. Then we go, right, we can't expect that. Oh well. Cause they're dead, right? And they're under condemnation, right? If somebody doesn't get this, if somebody's not living this way, there's death going on in their life. So, is that something we should be blase and blithe about? Like, should if, if Michael is a non-Christian that I know, should I sit there and go, well, as we all know, God is good all the time and all the time? He is risen! Michael goes, okay. I don't know your Christianism. I don't think like that. I don't know this. I don't have common experience, and I don't have a common frame of reference. I don't I can't even understand the stuff that you're talking about. You go, okay, so I need to present this beyond just, well, I expect that you'll understand and look at reality pretty much the same way that I do, and instead present the connected points that, I don't know, people in Scripture make when they're doing outreach to people and trying to help him to understand that. Conversely, though, what we oftentimes do is either give such biblical talking points to somebody that, of course, they're not going to understand it, or the flip side is we go, well, he doesn't get it, and we walk away. Because he doesn't get it. But he doesn't get it because he doesn't have the spirit. And I'm sorry, what was the either or there? If death or life. So if he doesn't have the spirit, he's walking in death, right? He's under condemnation. We're talking about somebody who is blindly heading toward hell. Should we be okay with that? If we understand really what it gets at here with this dichotomy, Remember John 3.16? What's John 3.16? Anybody? Oh my God, so love the world. That he gave his only God the Son, and he Because everybody does this as a mishmash of King James and NIV. Um, and what does John 3.18 say? It's not just 
not just another verse, it's part of the exact same paragraph, right? Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn the world. You know why? I don't have to. The world stands condemned already, right? There's two kinds of people. Those who are saved, changed, filled with the Spirit, and are moving toward life, and those who don't have God's Holy Spirit, and are not moving toward eternal life. They're moving toward death. They're condemned. Those who are in Christ are no longer condemned. Those who are not in Christ are absolutely condemned. That's the default. Right? If we understand new life in the Spirit, we really understand what that means, that the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Shouldn't that change how we interact with everybody? Because somebody is either my sister or my brother, or they are blithely tripping down a path toward death. There's, is there a third kind of person? Help me out here. Is there a third option? You've got some people living in the sinful nature and other people living in the Holy Spirit. Some people living in, in, toward death, some people living toward life. What's the third option? Should that change how we do things? There is no third option. There's not even a gradation. It's like, well, it's kind of like duotones. There's some black dots and some white dots, and there's kind of this, kind of that. You go, no. Well, half of me is going to hell, and half of me is going to heaven. No. How does that affect how we live? Given these verses, would you say that living according to the Spirit is an obligation, a requirement? Yes. Somebody read me verse 11. I understand. Verse 11. Somebody. Sarah, read. And the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit. So, how do you see the Trinity interacting in this verse and interacting with us? Do you? When you read this, do you see Trinity? Huh? It is interesting, isn't it? Okay. Look at it this way. This is Nikaiism, but this is just breaking it down to see. So you got the Holy Spirit is in red. God the Father is in green, Jesus is in white, you're in blue. What's God the Father doing? Yeah, he raised Jesus from the dead, right? And he also raised Jesus from the dead. What else is he doing? He's raising us from the dead, right? Cool. So God the Father raises us from the dead, yes? Yes. Cool. That's awesome. What's Jesus doing? Being raised from the dead, right? Twice over. What's the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit is raising from the Well, that's grammatically ambiguous. What's the Holy Spirit doing? He is living in us. Yeah. He helped apparently raise Jesus from the dead, but also... He's the one giving life to our mortal bodies, isn't he? Isn't that what he said earlier on in this chapter? 
So which part of the, of the Trinity is providing you new life? Yes. How is God the Father providing you new life? He physically Yeah, he's the one that's the author of all this. How is Jesus ultimately providing you new life? see that elsewhere in scripture, the idea that Christ goes ahead of us, he's the pioneer of anything, he's the older brother that goes ahead to prepare a room for us, whatever. Okay. How is the Holy Spirit, who is the most direct one here, how is the Holy Spirit giving you new life? Because in this verse, it's the Holy Spirit who's doing it, right? And again, how have we talked about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, how have we talked about him being the life in us? Giving us life? He's much more active than I say to Okay. That's putting it mildly, yeah. What's the word spirit in the Old Testament and the word spirit in the New Testament? Breath. Breath. Wind. Oxygen. He breathes into us. He is literally our life's breath now. There you go. So kind of like my conscience. Are you kidding me? He is our life's breath. Our minds click with his mind. See, I went with click. That's a different verb. Our minds click with his mind. Our heart beats with his heart. We live in the spirit or we live in the flesh. Is there a third option? So how actively in your life, how consciously in our lives, do we stop and say, I want to make sure I'm in step with the spirit? I mean, we'll think about it sometimes, but in general, we pray to God to lead us and we pray to... The, we, 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 we pray thank you for Jesus for saving us and giving us new life on the cross. None of that's wrong. But here in Romans 8, which part of the Trinity is most actively giving us new life? And which part of the Trinity are we most actively supposed to be walking in? And which part of the Trinity are we most actively supposed to be making sure our minds are focused on? And yet, somehow, we don't really think about it that way. Yeah. I, um, I'm sorry, this is a lot of topic, but going through this, and especially this part here, you see how active the spirit is. We tend to sometimes not look at it that way. Is that more of a modern thing? Is it something that like we've struggled with throughout, and God keeps having to tell us because it's just so different from our physicality? It goes in and out of phase, to be honest. I mean, there's been, if you remember in in, uh, in our church history class, there have always been sects of Christianity that kind of run with this and go, wait a minute. But what have we been missing? What, what just happened here? Um, but whether you're talking about neo-Gnosticism, or you're talking about the Pentecostal movement, or you're talking about whatever, there have always been groups that go, hey, wait! And there's always the tendency to say, oh, it's all about spiritual things. The flesh means nothing. It's all about walking spiritually, thinking spiritually, being spiritual, nothing tangible, nothing physical. You go, well, No! Do you misunderstand the concept of the Trinity? If we really want to be obnoxious about this, a third of the Trinity is specifically presented as, so God became flesh. And a third of the Trinity is, we're just going to call this one spirit. So it's all about spirit. No, so it's all about flesh. Oh my goodness, how can you miss this? It's just really hard, but it keeps coming in and out of phase, to be honest. Yep. Historically, and today, would you argue personification is a big part of it? 
And, and this is something we keep coming back to in our Sunday school classes. I, I, I do think that's a large part of it. Um, given this, this, would you say it's a requirement, an obligation for Christians to live according to the Spirit? No. It's Mark's turn. Mark, read me Romans 8, 12 to 13. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Given these verses, would you say that living new life in the Spirit would be an obligation? Yes. <laughs> Rules are more negative now. Everything's more negative. Yeah. However, I think it was not obligation you were obliged. It was like back in the day. I'm just gonna rat overgeneralize here. Back in the day you were obliged to someone for something they did for you. Obligation now is hey, you have work to do and it's Right. So Paul isn't saying that you have to do it this way. He's absolutely saying you have to do it this way. The motivation with which you do it with is a more positive motivation. Shouldn't it always be? I think so, but that's why I don't like the word obligation. Peter, when he says you're dealing with, the word he uses is twisted, deviant masters and rulers, ungodly, pagan rulers of your country. And Peter says, what should you do? You should obey them, right? You should honor them, because that's how you honor Christ, right? Respect them. Not if it requires you to sin. That's a whole other discussion. But if Peter and Paul, Jesus, could talk about your obligation to the Roman state, that when Peter's writing is currently crucifying people and lighting their, their bodies alight at night on the Appian Way, if, if they can say, no, you have an obligation to them, because of these positive things. Because you're actually serving Christ in this. You're actually serving God in this. Um, shouldn't that always be the take that we should have? Um, on the parts of, of Scripture, say, in Ephesians, where it's talking about that you should live according to the Spirit, not be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You should sing songs in the Spirit. You should sing hymns in the Spirit. You should submit to God and submit to one another is immediately followed by husbands. This is what you need to do with your wives, and wives, this is what you need to do with your husbands. Did he suddenly move from, look at the glory of following God and the, and the positivity of this and the joy of this, to, and grudgingly you have to submit to your spouse, too? No. Okay, but here's my point. In all this, we do struggle. If there's a constant, consistent struggle in the modern era, it's have to is usually associated, and this is where Gary comes back in with, in order to. I have to do this because otherwise I won't get a cookie. I have to do this because otherwise I lose my salvation. I have to do this or otherwise you'll hate me. I have to go apologize because otherwise you're just going to stay mad at me. 
when scripturally speaking, nine times out of ten, it's you have to do this because it's the right thing to do. You have to do this because it's who you are now. You have to do this because this is what honors God. You go, in order to do a good job of honoring God. Yep, but I mean, I have to do it or else what's going to happen to me? It'll stink at honoring God. I, I have to apologize because otherwise, what's going to happen? You need to apologize because you did something wrong. So I need to apologize in order to be forgiven. You need to apologize because you did something wrong. So regardless of whether the other person forgives you, you need to apologize. By the way, you need to forgive him. Because otherwise what? You will have not done the right thing, and now you'll be morally culpable. You need to forgive him. He hasn't apologized to me. I don't care. It's the right thing to do. You are under an obligation. This is who you are now. You have to do this. Why? Because it's who you are now. You have to do this. In order to do it right. Okay, but when it comes down to it, it's who you are now. It's what God has done in you. You're walking in the Spirit. There's only two paths. Which path do you... How many different ways do you want me to say this? You're either on the path or you're stepping off the path. You're, this is who you are now. If you're not doing this, you're doing the other one. You have to do it this way. You're under an obligation to do it this way. Or else what happens? You seem to want to jump to condemnation. Do you understand what I meant when I started all this by saying there was no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Let's get past that part. You have to do this. Why? Because it's who you are now. It's the right thing to do. Could there be other ripple effects? Sure. Is that the motivation he's giving here? No. You have to do this. This is what leads to life. You have to do that. That what leads to death. Okay. You have to make a decision. You have to make a decision. You have to do this. So, is this an obligation indicative of a works-oriented salvation? You have to do If you do this, you save yourself by what you do. If you don't do this, you damn yourself by what you do. Causation. How so? <laughs> um, it's not a works-oriented salvation because it's not the works that's saving you, but you're making a decision that saves you that then leads you to the right works. Okay. Some people would still say that that's a works-oriented thing because you're making that decision. I don't disagree with you. But yeah, it, it, it's not... Well, in order to be saved, you need to do... It's like, you have been saved. Therefore, this is what you do. You, you have to do this. This is, this is who you are. It's like, so I need to choose to be wet when I swim. If you're swimming, you're wet. It's, it's what you do. Now, in Eric's analogy, just, well, you have to choose to get in the water, though, right? So, important safety tip. This is important. Is this you living the right way and putting to death the wrong ways? Or is it the power of the Holy Spirit doing all that? Everybody thinks I'm being tricksy. So how does that work out? Scripturally. What does it say here in verse 11? Okay. So is... From everything we've read in these first 11 verses and into the 12th and 13th verse here, um, well, even especially at the end of verse 13, let's do that. 
If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So is this by the Spirit, or is this you doing it? Is he saying you need to put to death? You have to. You have an obligation. You need to do it. Or is he saying it's through the Holy Spirit that this is possible? Spirit. If by the Spirit, by the Spirit you put to death. So it doesn't really say whether the Spirit is originating that or you are originating that. So which one of you is doing it? You know, it's like you're doing it by the power. Yeah. You need to have the Spirit. You can't do it on your own. Are you driving your car, or is your car moving you along the roadway? Well, yes. I mean, you had to turn the key. You pushed the gas. You are doing it. But the car is the one, you know, moving things. Yes. Is it you or is it the Spirit? Yes. Can the Spirit save you without you being involved in the process? Well, no. How, how would that work? It doesn't, it's against everything we see in Scripture. So can you save you without the Spirit of life instigating, helping, directing, empowering that process? Absolutely not. It's, it's got to be a both end, right? And yet, we're told it's an either or. You're either in death or you're in life. You're either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. I'm not sure the spirit. I'm not sure on that path. Consistently in scripture, we see that God calls you, you respond, God empowers you. You respond. God works in you. You respond. God instigates. You act. Peter gives a sermon filled with the Holy Spirit. The crowd goes, what do we do? And he says two things. Repent and be baptized. Because you're saved by your baptism. Yes? Yeah. Pardon me? Yeah, he's like, okay, you need to repent. You need to move from death to life, because there's only one or the other. There's only one or the other. You need to move from death to life. And what's the first thing you should do when you move from death to life? Publicly express that. Say, who I was, I no longer am. I'm leaving that dead body on the, on the bottom of the baptistry, and I'm stepping up a, a new creation in Christ. Um, that's what Jesus talks about with, you need to be born of water and the Spirit. You need to, to make a decision, born by the Spirit, to be born by the Spirit. Oh, look at that. Um, but you need to make that decision, and you need to express that in how you live. So we see in Ezekiel, again, this idea of God changing you, but then you change you. You living this out. You expressing this in what you live. How would you summarize everything we've said today to somebody who has no biblical knowledge? How would you say that succinctly? God initiates, you know, because we're told multiple times that, you know, that we are called by God. And yet, we respond. And it's not just a once-time thing. It's this, and now I am living in the Spirit. I'm walking in the Spirit. I'm minding in the Spirit. Everything I'm doing, I need to be over here. Because if I'm not over here, I'm over here. And that's insane. Who would choose that? No, i got to be over here. And there's only, at any given point, you're only in one place or the other. Think that through. What do you want to live with? 
So you are walking in the Spirit. Everything you need to be doing is to be mindful of this. So what about those Christians? You, they go, yeah, sort of. At the very least, you're utterly missing the point, right? At worst, the Calvinist might say, I'm not sure you ever had the point in the first place. And the Arminian would say, or you lost the point. But can you sort of do it? What's the third option? You're walking in life, you're walking in death. You're walking in the spirit, you're walking in the flesh. You're following the sinful nature, you're being obedient to the spirit. You want to be in relationship with God, or you don't actively want to be in relationship with God. What's the third option? You're on the path, you're stepping off the path. And you can see that very works-oriented, very legalistically. So what I need to do is make sure I'm on the path so God has to save me at the end of the path. No! It's just, that's the natural end of the path. The natural end of that path you were on is not so good. This one, this well-marked, well-traveled, everybody that you care about is pointing here to this path. The end of this is life. Do that. How about you do that? Let's do that. Do you have to? Yes. You absolutely have to. Why? Because otherwise you're not doing Let's pray. Dear Lord, I, I thank you that you put up with us. So many times we, we want to go the opposite direction. So we want to think it's up to us or we have nothing to do with it. It's, it's our work or we're marionettes. We think that somehow we can be sort of Christian. We think that somehow we can do our own thing and still be pointed in the right direction. Lord, I thank you that you're very clear that you say, this is how you need to live. This is how you will live. This is how you naturally will live. This is how you have to live. And I don't say that to condemn you. I say that to give you life and to point to the fact that I have given you life. Thank you for your justification and thank you for your very patient sanctification in our lives. Help us to live that out every day. That new life in the Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.